Thanks for listening to the Mercy Church Podcast. If you're in the area, we want to invite you to join us the last weekend in March as we celebrate Good Friday and Easter Sunday. Good Friday services will be at 6 p.m. on Friday evening. And then on Sunday morning, we invite you to join us for a time of worship, a message, and baptisms. Bring your friends, your family, and if you feel so led, invite your coworker, cashier, or barista to join you. Services will be held at regular service times at all campuses. To learn more, visit mercycharlotte.com slash events. Again, that's mercycharlotte.com slash events. Amen to that. Hey, good morning, church. All right. Uh, My name's Spence. I'm one of the pastors here. And um, for those of you bold enough and you're still looking for seats, there are three right down front. Uh, that I am so excited about, especially reserved just for you. Um, and uh, man, excited for today. Today is Baptism Sunday here at Mercy Church. Yep, we're gonna have some fun. Man, we've got, um, here's where we got that. We got three, thank you guys. We got three, um, three different things. Um, what we've got first, we've got some folks that already know. They're going to get baptized. Um, we've got some, I believe, that you're here today, and you've been kind of like, ah, if you've been coming around Mercy, you're like, I don't know if I'm going to really make that jump or not. And today, uh, I think this is going to be your day to respond. We had that happen last service. They're going to have it again. And uh, above all, man, we're just going to be worshiping and celebrating what our God has done. In fact, um, the big theme, the big idea of our service today, the, the title of the sermon and where we're going is God will do it again. All right, and we're going to be over in Acts chapter 4, so if you've got a Bible, go ahead, head over there. Uh, if you don't, we're going to have the words on the screen, so um, don't worry, you won't be lost or anything, but uh, listen, here's what we've seen. We've been going through the book of Acts together, and over the course of the past five weeks, it's now week six in Acts, and over the past five weeks, what we've seen is we've seen God move, all right? Like, that's the point. That's what Luke is trying, our author, is trying to show us through Pentecost, The Holy Spirit comes down and you see this miraculous moment where the gospel is preached in all these different languages all at the exact same time. An amazing move of God. And then people come to faith in Christ, right? We see 3,000 people, in fact, get baptized in a single day. They come to faith in Christ. It's this huge movement, this awakening that's starting to happen in the city. Last week, we saw God move by healing someone that for 40 years of his life, he could never walk. And then in a moment, God lifts him up and he begins to leap and shout with joy, God moves. And what I want you to see, what today I hope happens, is I hope you get stirred a little bit uh, with the, now that you're starting to see a pattern, that God never moves just once. When God starts moving among his people, it's never just once. What he begins to, whenever he does something, it's actually just kind of a, a prompting for us to go back to him and believe he will do it again. And that's what we're going to see all morning, all right? Almost every time in Acts, when God moves, what ends up happening is it's through um, one of these, you know, 40 miracles you see or something else. What you see happens, a couple of things. The Christians, they get all excited. The people that are already followers of Jesus, and they start worshiping. Like, yes, yes, our God is moving again. And then people who aren't followers of Christ realize, oh my goodness, this is what I've needed. I never realized it, never realized it, but this is what I need. They turn from their sin. They repent. They come back to Christ. They get baptized, and the whole church celebrates together. So that's going to kind of be the rhythm of our service today, all right? Um, We're going to see God today, the way we're going to see God move. We're going to see God move again here in um, Acts chapter 4, and he's going to do it this time in the face of opposition to the gospel message. 
All right, so for our first time now that we're going to actually see the early church face opposition, won't be the last. All right, you go through the book of Acts, you're going to see time and time again, the gospel faces opposition, but this is our first time. And here's what's happening. The message that they preach is just really offensive to the culture that they're in. They're in a culture that we could call it pluralistic, which means the folks in charge are okay if you have faith. They're okay if you're even a little bit excited about it, but you should not try and convert someone else from their faith to yours. Man, what kind of arrogance is that? This is the spiritual climate the early church is in, which is what's so good for us because this is our climate, right? It's okay if you like Jesus. It's we like as a culture having people of faith. It's okay to have your, but please stay calm, right? And above all, don't try and convert someone to your way of thinking. That's arrogant. That's exclusive. There is a a cultural rule that we have in 21st century Western world that you can't dare claim you in your way is the only way. That's what we're into. And so I want you to, to see how the church responds, all right? How does the church respond when it's faced with that opposition to its message? We're gonna see two responses, all right? The way we see, the way we see them respond is first, man, it's um, what we're gonna call spirit-filled testimony, all right? And I'm saying testimony in the legal sense of the word because we're gonna see them say, we can't help but speak of what we've seen and heard, testimony. And then we're gonna see faith-filled praying, that's the two responses that the church gives when faced with opposition. That's what we're going to see, all right? Now, so Acts chapter 4, verse 8 is where I want you to get ready. Uh, let me set up the scene for you. If you're newer with us, here's what's happened. Last, um, in Acts chapter 3, last week for us, we saw Peter and John heal this guy, um, and he's able to walk, all right? And then they start preaching about under what power it happened, right? So they start telling everybody it was in the name of Jesus, the only way that you can be saved. That's who did this. Well, the religious leaders are not very happy with them. All right. Now, listen, it's not that they're um, not happy about a guy walking. It's that they keep preaching about Jesus being the only means of salvation. That's what they're not happy about. So they throw Peter and John in prison. But as they're throwing, watch this, as they're throwing them in prison, 5,000 men, it says, which means all a whole bunch of other people as well come to saving faith in Christ as they're being carried off into prison. What has happened? God moves. They saw God move. So then they're thrown into prison. All right, well, now verse eight, we pick up because what the religious leaders think is, we'll leave them in prison overnight. That'll sober them up. That'll calm them down. Then we'll come out and we'll talk about it. So verse eight, they bring them out and they say, all right, under what power did you do this healing thing? And here's Peter and John's response. Uh, Here's the way Luke talks about it. Verse eight, then Peter was filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, both in our response here, then the testimony and in the praying that we're gonna see in a little bit, both of them begin with, they were filled with the Holy Spirit. All right, so we're gonna gonna kind of keep coming to that. I'll come up again in verse 13, I think. Um, Filled with the Holy Spirit and said to them, rulers of the people and elders, if we're being examined today about a good deed done to a disabled man by what means he was healed, basically, are we on trial for helping someone? Is that what's happening here? Well, if so, verse 10, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, here goes Peter again, whom you crucified and whom God raised from the dead, by him, this man is standing here before you healthy. 
right out of the gate, Peter's talking about Jesus. You want to know to, who to give credit to for this man's health? His name is Jesus. And y'all, I long for the day where the best criticism our culture can throw at us is those Christians over at Mercy Church. They're just so generous all the time. We're sick of how generous they are. Man, I hope we get the chance to be put on trial for our generosity, get blamed for it, right? For, for changing the lives of the hurting and marginalized in our community. We get put on trial for a dramatic decrease in child trafficking and child homelessness. Then by all means, let it be known that by the name of Jesus, these children are alive and well in our community, right? That's, us, that's our moment to say, we've seen God move. He gets the credit. Peter keeps going, verse 11. This Jesus is the stone rejected by you builders, which has become now the cornerstone, the thing that everything else is built off of, verse 12. There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to people by which we must be saved. There it is. He finishes with that offensive, exclusive faith claim that there's salvation in no one else, no other name. And I want to tell you right now, that's the gospel message. That's the gospel message. And, and actually, baptism, we're going to see later, is a, a visible kind of sermon being preached. It, but that's the content of the message of everyone's baptism. Each of us has run from God, and so we need saving, right? There's salvation in no one else implies that we all need saving. And that's the Christian message that we all do need rescue. We run away from God and we need rescue. We need to be brought back into God's presence. And the only way to be brought back is through Jesus. This, look, this is how God first moves in your life, or at least how you first see him move, right? He's actually been moving all along where the first time you see him move is when you realize that you have been running from him and you're tired because your sin has made you tired from running from him. And so now you're like, God, I need you. I want you to move in my life. And God says, look at the cross. Jesus paid for your sin. So you don't have to pay for it to come back. Look at the empty tomb. Jesus defeated death. He can give you new life. Come home. His first move is to draw you home. And that's what he's going to do for some of you today. I'm confident of it as I've been praying over you. Verse 13, when they observed the boldness of Peter and John, and they realized they were uneducated and untrained men, they were amazed and recognized, look at this, that they had been with Jesus. Whew. Peter and John weren't the guys with all the degrees on the wall. That's your, that's your Pharisees and religious leaders right? How is it possible that guys with no training are speaking so eloquently, so boldly? Well, that's verse 8. They were filled with the Holy Spirit. It, there's a, a very clear message being sent to us that they didn't need to go get seminary training in order to preach boldly. All they needed was the Spirit of God with them to empower them for the moment. So Luke wants us to see, that's huge, Christians. Go ahead. I'm going to come back to you again, but you need to go ahead and take some courage right here. You don't need seminary training. You don't need a whole bunch of degrees on the wall. You don't need to be eloquent. All you need is the Spirit of God who is promised to be with you. That's so good. And I love that little tag that they recognized that they had been with Jesus, who was another seemingly common man who spoke with authority from heaven. Right? They had been with that guy. 
in verse 14 is, this might be my favorite um, of the whole thing. Since they saw the man who had been healed standing with them, they had nothing to say in opposition. Like, it's really hard to try and have a debate when this dude keeps leaping around the room and inviting you to go on a run, right? And yesterday he couldn't walk. So there's the evidence is too much. So verse 18, so here's what they do. They call for them. This is the religious leaders now calling for Peter and John and ordered them not to speak or teach in the name of Jesus. Now, this is the fly on the wall moment we all want to be at. Because it's like, the religious leaders know that they don't really actually have control over these guys and over the power that they're preaching in. And Peter and John know that they know that they don't have that control and power, right? So there's this there's kind of bluff happening. I mean, what are they going to threaten them with? Because that's what they're trying to do, trying to threaten them. What are they going to threaten? We'll kill you if you keep preaching. We tried that with Jesus. He came back, right? <laughs> well, fine. Then we're going to take all your stuff. We actually gave that away in Acts 2, so we don't really need any stuff. All right. Well, then we will keep you in prison. Great. We've got some writing that we've been meaning to get done, some letters we want to send out, different areas. That'll give us plenty of time, right? What are they going to threaten them with? So Peter and John call the bluff. Peter and John, verse 19, answer them. Well, this is so good. Whether it's right in the sight of God for us to listen to you rather than to God, you decide. For we are unable to stop speaking about what we have seen and heard. I love this. I told you there's two responses to this opposition. And the first is this spirit-filled testimony, right? It's think of court of law. It's the witness on the stand saying, this is what I saw and heard. They saw God move. Isn't this who we want to be as a church? Man, a group of people who have experienced such an awakening in our own lives. We have seen God move. Such an absolute transformation that we are unable to stop speaking about what God has done. Is that where you are right now? That you're unable to stop speaking about what he's done in your life and in your family's life. Listen, God moved in me at 12 years old and saved me. And since then, I have seen him move in people from six years old all the way to 83 years old. I have seen him save white, black, Hispanic, and Asian Americans. I have personally seen him save Cubans and Chinese. I have seen him save devout atheists, and I've seen him save people so steeped in cultural Christianity that they had no idea that they were lost. I've seen him save 750 people in three days. I've seen him save 75 people in one worship service. We baptized all 75 of them. It took till two in the afternoon and my right shoulder gave out and we had to call in relief pitching. I've seen him do it, right? I have seen him save routine marriages. I have seen him save dead marriages. I've seen him save drug addicts, porn addicts, and work addicts. I've seen him save the guy on my hall that I prayed for for like a year in freshman year. I've seen him save someone that I was talking to and only knew for 10 minutes. I've seen him heal victims. I've seen him restore sinners. I've seen him provide buildings and finances and pastors for his work. I saw him save the girl that would become my wife. I've seen him save my two sons. I see him moving in my daughters. I have seen God move. I've seen him move and you have too. And that stirs something in me and you can't shut me up about it. Have you seen God move? When you do, it sparks this like joy and this, I got to tell you about it. I was trying to think of some, 
some things that it's kind of like, but it's unlike anything else. But maybe something that it's um, that, that are kind of shadows of that feeling is uh, like when you get engaged. Like we got a lot of people on our church staff right now that are, that are engaged, about to get married, and you know that moment where you're like, I can't wait to tell, can't wait to tell, can't wait to tell, tell some people. It's like that joy times a hundred. Or hey, we're we're about to to have a baby. We found out we're gonna have a baby. That's some people I can't wait to tell times a hundred. I actually got into the school, my first school of choice. I can't believe it. It's that joy times a hundred. Does God stir your soul like that? Because here's the greatest thing, the greatest thing. God moving is not a one-time event. Past grace is promise of future grace. Now, before I go into what they did next in that prayer gathering, let me pause. Let me make a couple of um, important comments, I think, on how Peter and John shared their story, okay? I hope this helps you. Like I said earlier, the message wasn't really troubling because they believed it. It was troubling because they convinced 8,000 people right there to believe that message, and it started to turn the world upside down. And what they told everybody is that anyone who disagrees with them was dead wrong about Jesus and was going to be held accountable to God for what they were saying, that there's no other name under heaven by which you can be saved, That's offensive in a pluralistic world like they lived in and like we live in. It's seen as arrogant. How could you believe that everyone else is wrong and only you are right? So I want you to see a couple of things. Just dissect Peter's testimony just a little bit. Help you see a couple of things that maybe if you're, if that's you kind of walking in here with that kind of skeptical sort of guard up about this, maybe this will help you or maybe it'll help you, Christian, talk with a friend. Uh, First thing I want you to see is that Peter wasn't claiming to be smarter than others, that Christians were the smart ones who had it all right just because they're smart. In fact, Luke goes out of his way to make sure we know that, right? I mean, verse 13, when they observed that they were uneducated and untrained men. Now, Luke, our author, he's a physician. He's educated and trained, and he wants to make sure we know that these guys were not summa cum anything at all, right? In fact, I thought about doing a little like um, Greek word study right here for us. Uh, The word untrained in Greek is idiotes. Yeah, see, you know Greek, right? You know what that, that's where we get our English word idiot from. And can you just imagine, like, I find myself thinking Peter reading this years later going, dude, really, was that necessary to get your point across? But it's because Luke wants us to know there's no presumption. This is not an anti-intellectual thing, but there's just no presumption of, like, elite intelligence, right? It's just verse 20. It's an encounter, That's what he's claiming. He's claiming an encounter. We're unable to stop speaking about what? What we've seen and heard. We saw God move. We can't stop talking about it. Salvation has nothing to do with how great your intellect is. The Pharisees had all the degrees on the wall, but at the end of the day, what Peter and John are saying is, you guys are smart, but he got out of the grave. And so if I got to choose between the people with all the degrees And the guy who said, I'm going to go into the grave and three days later, I'm going to get out. And he did it. I'm going with that guy. Right? That's not arrogant. In fact, it might be more arrogant to not believe that guy. Listen, there's a um, kind of the response to this that we often get is captured in a famous um, old parable. I think I've shared it with you before. Uh, It's a famous parable. We could call it the elephant parable. It's an old um, parable that basically says this. It's famous Indian parable. It says there were a group of blind men who heard that a new exotic animal had showed up in their village called an elephant, and they wanted to go discover what is this new animal. So they all gather around the elephant, 
and they each in turn describe what the elephant is. One says, the elephant is a wall. It's like a wall. It is big, large, and wide, and sturdy. And another says, no, he's, another one's holding onto the trunk. So the elephant is like a thick snake. Another says, no, because he's holding onto the ear. And he says, the elephant's like a fan. And the last one says, no, no, and he's holding onto the legs. So the elephant's like a strong pillar. Right? And these guys get so mad at each other because each one is so confident in their experience, right? And the moral is that it is arrogant. This is the moral of the parable. It's arrogant to claim that you know absolute truth based on your limited subjective experience. So that's where the Christian's calm down thing is, right? That's what the, that's what the Christian's calm down because you only have your subjective experience. Now, there's a guy named Leslie Newbigin who spent the majority, he was a Christian missionary to India. So he heard this time and time again, spent the majority of his life there. And he said, there's two big problems with this parable and with this whole way of thinking. He said, the first is, who in the world is the narrator telling the story? The person narrating the story apparently is the one that can see the whole elephant. Do you realize how arrogant that claim is? That you won't let anybody else do the very thing that you are doing seeing the whole elephant. You get to see the whole picture, right? That's actually way more arrogant than what Christians are doing. And the second thing Newbigin said is, and what if the elephant spoke and said, hi, I'm an elephant. Let me tell you a little bit about myself. Wouldn't that justify, uh, that would would kind of change the scenario? Because that's essentially what Christians are saying, that God spoke in Jesus and verified who he is through prophecies, miracles, and most importantly, through his resurrection. To believe that is not arrogant. Now, you might think it's silly, but it's most certainly not arrogant. Believing in Christ is, to me, actually a a humble claim because it's saying we're actually not smart, smart enough to figure out who God is, so God had to come and tell us. Now, also, I think this is important, not just that they're not claiming intellectual superiority, but also Peter's not claiming to be morally superior either. Last week, we saw Peter heal the lame man, which started this whole chain of events, right? And Peter said, the very first thing he says, Acts 3.12, he says, now let's make sure you understand, don't look at us. Why are you staring at us? As though we made him walk by our own power or godliness. It wasn't our moral superiority that made this happen. No, God moved because God moves. And he loves to move through his people. It was entirely the grace and power of Jesus. Peter is still raw knowing what has happened, right, in his past. He knows he's the one that denied Jesus three times. He knows he's the one that Jesus called Satan. He's saying, look, Peter's saying that Jesus is the only way. It's not intellectual or moral superiority. And if your response to that is, listen, that, yeah, I hear you, but I don't like a religion that excludes people. Well, I've got to tell you, all religious claims are exclusive in some way or another. If you think, yeah, but all good people from every religion should go to heaven. Well, you've just excluded all bad people. And who are, now you got to decide what bad is, where that line is, and who are you to become the almighty judge over what constitutes bad? Plus, what if those bad people feel bad about their badness? Do you have to be sad about your bad in order to qualify as not being truly bad? And if I'm not sad about my bad, then I'm really bad. Well, that's like this weird Dr. Seuss loop that you've now put yourself in that 
That doesn't seem to make a whole lot of sense, right? It seems like you are the narrator and you're looking at the elephant and still can't describe it. Look, everyone has a line for who's in or out, even devout atheists. The difference is, this is so beautiful, what I want you to hear today is that Christianity offers acceptance not based on what you do, not based on your moral performance, not based on your intellect, not based on your political affiliation, not on any of that. Christianity is based on an event that happened that said God offers you forgiveness of your sin and Christ's death on the cross. That was a payment for your sin. His resurrection defeated the penalty of death, which is separation from God. So now you can have new life. Christianity offers it. It says all you have to do is receive it. You can receive it. And listen, what you, what you hear there is Christians saying, we saw God move. We saw God move in us. We were the lame man. Think about this. Think about the, the story of the lame man. This guy outside the temple, forbidden to enter the temple by Levitical law. That was all of us. Unable to go into the presence of God because of our sin. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And yet Christ comes out of the presence of God. He comes out to pick us up. He lifts us up and he says, come with me back into the presence of God. I will take you there. That's what his death and resurrection are, an invitation to take his hand. Let him heal you and walk you into the presence of the Lord. There is no greater move of God in your life than his forgiveness for your sin and of him making you into a new creation. When we baptize you, see what happens, even the physical posturing, we lay you down like the lame man. You're unable to do anything on your own, right? Down into the water that is representing the grave. And then we pull you back up as Christ got out of the grave. And then you stand in what Christ has done for you. And we all celebrate. You're going to see it later. And the reason we all celebrate, we're not worshiping you. We're saying we were all unable to walk. We were all dead in our sin. And Christ rescued us and healed us just like he's done with you. But baptism is just the first of many, many times we get to share, I saw God move and I gotta tell you about it. Christian, you don't have to be the smartest or the holiest to share what Christ has done. In fact, God often uses people where there is no mistaking that it's God working and not us. That's his favorite person to use. So if you think, man, I've got this one person in my life. I wish they knew God like I know God. Uh, they're far from God right now. Uh, they're close to me. They're a part of my life. And I wish they knew God like I did. But I'm just not able. I, I get my tongue gets all tied and twisted when I try to talk about it. And not only that, this person has seen my life. They've seen those times where I've been a hypocrite. They have seen me drive, right? They, they know that I'm not always as obedient of a Christian as I want to be. They have seen my sin and I'm not able. L listen to me perfect. Excellent. That's exactly who God wants to use so that he can get the glory and not you. Just go and testify about what you've seen and heard. I have seen God move and I got to tell you about it. And if you're like, well, what about, where's the power for that come from? The Holy Spirit who is promised to be with you, he'll do it. 
He'll do it. The Spirit is with you, wants to fill you for that task. Ask him, ask him, which leads right to our second response that we'll get to. All right, the second response that the church gives, first you got the Spirit-filled testifying, you got this faith-filled praying. They went to God. They Look, Peter and John get released, and they go to God, and in effect say, God, we saw you move. We want you to do it again. Look at this, verse 24. When they heard the account that Peter and John came back and told them, this is now the whole church gathered together. They raised their voices together. You don't need to hear. Luke doesn't bother to say who it was that voiced the prayer because all of them together are doing it. And they said, Master, I want you to just, I want your soul to pause, your heart to pause on that word. Do you approach God like that? Master. As in, he is the authority of your life. Like he's in control and he's, authoritative. This was convicting for me this week, guys. I don't approach God like master. I don't say that word when I'm praying to him. It's very humbling for me, and maybe it needs to be for you. Then he says, you're the one. They say you're the one who made the heaven, the earth, and the sea, and everything in them. God, you created everything. Let's make sure our hearts are rightly looking at who it is that we're talking to. You created everything. Verse 25, you said through the Holy Spirit, by the mouth of our father David, your servant, why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot futile things, things that they won't be able to carry out because they're against God? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers assemble together against the Lord and against his Messiah. Here's what they're saying in these two verses. You've always known that some will reject you. And we're acknowledging that what's happening now ain't new. There's always been those that reject you. We're acknowledging that you knew that. And then verse 27, woo, in fact, in this city, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, you gotta watch the commas in this sentence, with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, they assembled together against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed, to do whatever your hand and your will had predestined to take place. Like I thought about just saying, let's just stop and grammar time on this thing, right? Because it's important, I know, it's bad. I got plenty more of those, okay? But look, that's not important for today. But the thing I want you to see is, what you've got here is he talks about, all right, Jesus is your anointed servant. And then Herod, Pontius Pilate, Gentiles, people of Israel, they all got together. And what did they get together and do? Verse 28, whatever your hand and your will had already predestined to take place. Here's what I want you to, I want you, this is the faith I wanted to stir in you, that even at the moment where it seemed like God was most out of control, where Jesus was dying on the cross, it was happening exactly as God knew it would. And he was sovereign over the whole thing. That will, the mystery of what's happening there, man, when you dive into that, what you'll come out of with is such thankfulness for the sovereign goodness of our God. Verse 29, and now, Lord, consider their threats. Now that our hearts are like properly lined up with who you are and what you've done, consider their threats, which seems small now. And grant that your servants may speak your word with all boldness. What do they pray for in the middle of this opposition? They don't pray for traveling mercies or something like that. Whatever those things are, that's not what they're doing. They're saying, listen, God, we want to see you do it again. We see what you've done. We're asking for boldness because we believe you're going to do it again. In fact, verse 30, while you stretch out your hand for healing and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. We believe you'll do it again. We believe you want to move again. Past grace is a promise of future grace. So God, get us ready for what you want to do through us. And when they had prayed, the place where they were assembled was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit 
and began to speak the word of God boldly, began to do what they asked God for the power to do. Let me summarize this prayer for you. God, you have done great things. You want to go home and you want to pray this prayer? God, you have done great things, and I believe you'll do them again. Give me boldness. Give me humility to know that it's your power, not mine. I believe you'll do it again. You've done great things, creation, sovereignty, the gospel, the works that I'm seeing you do. You saved me. Do it again. Pour out your spirit. Bring an awakening to our city because you can and because you want to. So here's what we're going to do, church. October 10th, Thursday, October 10th, we're going to fast all day long, and then we're going to come into this room, and we're going to pray together, and this is going to be the model for our prayer. We'll pray for about an hour or until we feel like we need to stop, and we're going to ask the Lord, do it again. We've seen you move. Do it again. This is the church. We've seen God move. We believe he'll do it again, and some of you are thinking, I want God to move in my life. For some of you, this is deeply personal. Good. I want God to move in my life. His first move, the first time you sense it, is when he saves you. And that's the step you need to take today. I want to see God move. I got all these things going on. I'm saying, great. First, turn from your sin and come home. Come home. That's the first move. And you can do that today. Listen, I told you we're going to give you the chance to testify to what the Lord has done in baptism, to say, God, I believe. In just a moment, we're going to celebrate it. Um, and baptism, listen, it's a picture of the gospel. That's what it is. It's saying you are believing that, yes, I was a sinner unable to save myself. Christ died for me. I'm going into the water and coming up in newness of life that Christ purchased for me with his death and resurrection. That's what's happening. And all of us are going to celebrate saying God has moved again. God has moved again. And some of you need to take that step today. You need to receive Christ's salvation, or maybe you received it some time ago, and you've been like, ah, I just never, I don't know, I want to do this, and today's the day you need to do that. Let me speak to you if that's you. Either way, if you're thinking about, do I need to get baptized? Here's some objections that, uh, kind of like hesitancies, I should probably a better way to say it, that I often hear. The first is the, I'm not ready. Listen, if you've trusted Christ, you're ready. Don't think I got to get cleaned up. Don't think I need to get at least moral enough so that when I get into the water, they understand that I'm a guy who's like, or a girl who's like kind of on the up, I'm making a change, this is another step. No, 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 no. That's like how I approach going to the gym and it, it's wrong. It's like, well, let me do some good eating. Let me lose about 10 pounds before I go to the gym because I don't, you know, that's the thing. No, no, Christ says, don't try and clean. That's Christ's work to transform your life. Do not rob him of that. That is for him to do. Today, you just come. You just come and receive what he's done. Another one I, I hear a good bit. Oh, by the way, let me say, when we move and, and we take that chance and you want to take that step, you're not just going to, we're not going to tell you to come down here and cannibal into the water. We're going to send you back to talk to somebody, okay? Like we've got pastors, prayer team members who are going to hear your story, celebrate what God's doing in you, right? We're going to care for you in this decision and all the others that are going to come after that. Uh, another hesitancy here is that I was baptized as a baby. And if that's you, listen, baptism as a baby, an infant, whatever, was not really a profession of your faith. It was a profession of your parents' faith. And we should praise God for that, all right? Uh, but listen, in, in Scripture, baptism is always uh, followed, 
after someone professes faith in Christ. Baptism comes out after as a public display of what it is that's, that's happened, a new inward reality. So you should probably think of this moment as ratifying your parents' hopes and prayers over you as you make this decision and declare your own faith in Jesus. Um, you might think to yourself, yeah, but I'm not a Baptist and I don't know if I want to be one, all right? <laughs> Look, let's just take that down a little bit and chill out. Like, this is not for, like, kids who were Baptists to fulfill their Baptist destiny or some kind of thing. I don't know. Um, if that, but if that was a legit thing for you, look, there was one Baptist in the New Testament. It was John the Baptist, and he was only called that because he was baptizing people. And Christ calls you to obedience, all right? He's not calling you to a denomination, affili- denominational affiliation in this moment. What he's calling you to is to obey him, yeah. all right? Don't let those fears of all that stuff get in the way of simple obedience, to what he has called you to. And like I said, we're gonna shepherd you through this moment, whatever that is. Uh, you might say, yeah, but I don't have a change of clothes. Great news. Pastor Richard is a very detail-oriented guy and it blesses us in all kinds of ways, especially uh, me personally, because I tend to struggle with those things. And Pastor Richard is on it. He's got all the clothes that you could possibly need, towels, hair dryers. He has thought of everything and we have all of it for you, okay? Last one might be um, that I'll just say. I know there's maybe something else, but... You're like, I came with people. We're supposed to go eat after this. I don't know that they'll wait around. Let me tell you something. First of all, the people that brought you are probably the very people hoping that you will make this decision, okay? (laughs) Because they want you to encounter the God that they have encountered. All right? And listen, even more than that, when I call everybody in just a second to make that decision, you just reach over, squeeze their hand. That's like the signal that I want you to go with me, okay? Like you squeeze their hand and say, hey, I want to go. I'm a little nervous. They will go with you, okay? And if not... Listen, following Jesus is just more important than that. And we will make sure we find a way to get you home, okay? I will feed you lunch. If that is the scenario that you get into, I will take care of it, all right? Here's what's gonna happen. I'm gonna pray. And then I'm going to stand, here's kind of the motion of the next couple minutes. I'm gonna pray over us. I'm gonna give you a chance to respond to God. Then I'm gonna stand us all up together. And as I stand us all up, um, during in that motion, you make your move towards the aisles. And we've got prayer team members at the back doors that are ready to greet you, pastors and prayer team members ready to greet you and talk with you, okay? Now, listen to me. This is not the time in the service where you go to the bathroom, okay? That you can hold for another few minutes, all right? And you are gonna be okay. I'm trusting the Lord with that. This is the time for people that need to respond to the gospel to respond to the gospel, all right? Let me pray for you, um, and then we'll, we'll go with what's next and see what the Lord is doing among us. All right. In fact, as I pray for you, maybe first I need to, as you bow your head, close your eyes, and just kind of walk you through a prayer. And that's that prayer of saying, God, I'm ready. I see my sin, I'm ready to be done with it. I'm tired of being, I'm tired of it gripping me like this. I need freedom, I want freedom from it. You just say, God, I believe that Christ died for my sins and I receive the forgiveness he offers. I believe he rose from the grave and I receive the new life that that is giving me today. God, give me courage to take the next step with joy. 
For those of you that have been following Christ for a while, but you haven't taken that step to follow him in baptism, God, give me courage to take this step with joy. Christians who are a part of the church and have gone through that. God, give these folks the courage to take that step with joy. God, thank you for saving me. I have seen you move. I believe you'll do it again. God, we have seen you move among us. (laughs) I believe you're doing it again now. Thank you. Thank you for moving. Thank you that it's not based on anything that I have done or can do, any ability. It's your spirit working. And we praise you for it. In the mighty name of Christ, we pray. Amen. All right. Like I said, I'm going to stand us all up and you're going to make that move, if you need to make that move to go and be baptized. And regardless, um, church, let us celebrate that our God has moved and we believe he'll move again. All right, everybody, let's stand together. And as you need to make that move, you move, go talk to someone and let's continue to worship.